You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 2 of Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs, and thank you so much for tuning in. Last week, Episode 1 dropped featuring Mackenzie Fuchs' testimony, so if you missed it, make sure to go back and give it a listen. I want to take a second to thank you all for making last week's launch so successful. While I'm not focused on getting a certain number of downloads, I do want these testimonies to get out to as many people as possible to bring hope, healing, and inspiration. And the best way to do that is for you guys to share this podcast with others, leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this on, and for those of you who have Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave a five-star rating as that helps out a lot and is much appreciated. This week, we're celebrating Pastor Appreciation Month by having my pastor on the show. You're going to hear a testimony of how an emotionally neglected middle child looking for attention and value in all the wrong places came to find his identity and purpose in Christ. And you're going to hear how saying yes to God at timely moments in his life shaped it and prevented disaster from happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Denny Curran's testimony. All right, everyone. I am here with my pastor, the lead pastor of River of Life Church in Cold Spring, Minnesota, Denny Curran. Denny, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Terry. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of going in depth to hear your story. Obviously, through the years and your sermons, I've heard bits and pieces. And so I'm looking forward to kind of just tying it all together and really um, getting to know your story of, of faith. Sure. So why don't we start at the beginning, Denny? Where did you grow up and what was family life like for you? I grew up in Spokane, Washington up until about fourth grade. Then from fourth grade to the rest of my life, I've been here in Minnesota. We we moved from Spokane to East St. Paul and or to North St. Paul. And uh, I attended a Catholic, good Catholic school all the way up until ninth grade and then uh, went to public school. What what led your family to moving to Minnesota? My dad was promoted, in a, and he worked for Great Northern Railway and then got a union job, which was based here in St. Paul, Minnesota. What was that like for you, moving from the West Coast? It, it took it took some time to adjust to the different culture. The people talk different here than uh, they do. They uh, they think different. They have uh, different interests, and... We were we were in the foothills of the Rockies and uh, loved that area. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful, pine trees and crystal clear lakes. And then moved here, and uh, we missed the mountains. I think more than anything, uh, everything was so green here that was was uh, something unusual. Uh, but uh, we lived close to a lake, so we we were close to lakes. But they're not as clean or as the water as clear as we had out west, you know. So yeah. What what was it like for you personally making that move? Did you enjoy it, or what struggles did you maybe have with? You that? know, we did, we didn't have anything to say about it. You know, it's, it was my dad was going to do it, so we uh, I think remember as a ten year old that uh, 
that, you know, it's, it's just something we're going to do, you know, and, uh, I, I do remember missing some of my friends and driving by their houses. We left the town for the first time that, or for the last time and, and, uh, and knew I probably would never see them again. So it kind of gave me an empty, hollow, scary feeling and, and then had to adjust to the, to this area and make new friends. And, uh, you know, so, uh, we were constantly, um, uh, Moving when we when we got here to different schools, I went to. When we got here, we went to uh, Harmony Elementary, and then I moved over to St. Peter's School, and then to uh, back to Harmony Elementary, and then North Junior High, and then to Hill High School, and then to Harding High School, and in Spokane, we had three different schools. So it was always trying to uh, make new friends and to adjust to. Uh, learning styles and the different schools that uh, we attended from from public school to private school was was an adjustment. But you know, it's, it's just something we did. We never thought, "Well, I'm not going to do this," because it was just we figured part of life, and we did it. You know? Yeah, it sounds like you just kind of became resigned to the fact that this is just what we do. I got to move schools. I got to make new friends. And and what was that like for you, making friends at all these different schools? Well, it was it was, it was exactly right, Terry. We, it was tough at times. I remember fourth grade was the toughest because uh, we were at um, North Elementary in North St. Paul. And that area, the 3M company, is uh, one of the major corporations in that area. So a lot of the families work for 3M, and they came from all over the world. And we had someone for Korea there, and he was a little, of course, different. And then we had someone from uh, uh, Germany there, and uh, they dressed differently. He came in shorts with uh, white shirts and and socks up to his knees, and and he he didn't look American. And I knew in fourth grade that it was going to be tough, especially at noon hour, lunch hour. So uh, at lunch hour, I watched them beat this kid up, you know, and he went home, his white shirt was bloody, never saw him again, never came back to school. And then they were after the Korean. He was the second new person, so they chased him. Oh, he was fast, so so they uh, they thought, well, we could we could use him as a part of our baseball or soccer team, and, and then I knew I was next. So um, lunch hour was over, so I remember worrying about that all night, knowing that when lunch hour came the next day, that I was going to be the new kid that that I'm going to have to prove myself. So I I could run. I ran and and uh, so uh, I ran from them. Ran for my life, you know. So so uh, uh, became friends. I could I could they could use me on their soccer team or not their soccer team, but their kickball. There was no soccer back then, but and football and uh, baseball. So I became friends. So I had to have some strength in some area of my life to make those friends. And I've learned, had learned to do that for the rest of my life is just find out something. I, I could uh, meet somebody on common ground and, and we could become friends. So I think it was it's a skill that God gave me because of all the moving from eight or nine different schools by the time I left high school. Yeah, for sure. It's cool to see that even back then God was preparing you for the ministry yep. with having to meet, you know, new people all the time and uh, connecting with people. What was family life like for you? You mentioned your dad worked for the railroad. What, uh, yeah, what was uh, family life like for well, you with your parents and siblings? We had six kids when we left Spokane, and uh, my mom and dad had a little surprise here in Minnesota. So uh, we had our, our uh, seventh uh, sister, our seventh family member was a sister. And, yeah, so we were, we were uh, not real close, but 
kind of close. You know, we did we did things together, went vacations together, and and um, when we did go on vacations, but we uh, uh, we're pretty much left on our own. We we didn't uh, we didn't have a lot of structure. Uh, but one thing that was required of us, we had to go to church. As long, my dad says, as long as you live in this house, you're going to go to church. When you turn 18, you can do what you want. So uh, we went to church every Sunday. And uh, so we were religious and uh, and somewhat connected as a family. What kind of like denomination or church we were, did you We were Catholic. In? We were Catholic, uh, came from the Catholic faith uh, and uh, I defended that most of my life. You know, if anyone anyone uh, would say anything against Catholic Church, I, and still today I would do that, but uh, I would defend it. But I think it got a little uh, obsessive for my mom, especially we when we were in Spokane. Uh, a Baptist church was uh, uh, put in was built, and we had to pass it on our way when we walked home from school. And my mom would say, "When you get to that church, you you better not be on the same side of the street. You better cross the road." So they were a little uh, obsessed with the idea that we're Catholics and. Uh, were, were privileged, but I find that the evangelicals did the same thing. You know, don't hang out with the Catholics. I think we see that that side of our faith and both sides have kind of come to an end. We've, we're more trusting and accepting and uh, try to understand each other and their views. So Sure, sure. Uh, so you have seven siblings. Where are you in the birth order? Right in the middle. Three older, three younger. So what was that like being the, the middle child? Well, the, neglected. <laughs> the oldest three got the attention, and the last, the last two, I'd, I'd say, got got most attention. But yeah, we monkey was always in the middle, so I, I was the one that probably did things just to get the attention, but but always was told I was bad or evil, or because I was always uh, acting up or doing something that was outside of the rules. You were told you were bad or evil by your parents. Yeah, my parents. I think straighten up. You know, don't, don't always be like that. And I, I don't know why I did those things, but I just did things that uh, that the rest of my brothers and sisters didn't do. You know, so and even even um, uh, oh, probably about five years ago, my dad died, and and I wanted I want to take my my kids and my son in laws and daughters in law to where I grew up in the house. You know, so. We uh, uh, went to where I grew up, and and a lady came out, and uh, I told her this is the house that for my first house I lived in when I was in Minnesota, and they said, "Wow, we found strange things in this house." She said, "We found a, a, a brand new um, set of silverware in the walls, and we found a diamond ring in the walls, and uh, found that the walls weren't insulated, and we we froze to get in that death in that house." And I told my mom that. And she says, oh, I, we don't know where that silverware went to. And that ring that my dad bought me, we always thought that you stole it, sold it to buy drugs. You know, So I got blamed for things I didn't do, but because of the way I was living and the direction I was going, uh, that's why the blame came to me. So that's kind of how I grew up. Yeah, sounds like you maybe were acting out at times to get some love and affection and attention from your parents. I know just working in the therapy field, that's pretty common for the middle child to, to do that. Cause oftentimes the middle child does feel left out, neglected. I, I think of like Jan from the Brady bunch, you know, that's kind of a classic example of a, of a middle child there. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned you were blamed for things because of the way you were living. How were you living at that time? 
Well, we were, you know, we were uh, uh, going to school, switching schools, you know, so um, I just would hang around with maybe the wrong crowd and uh, um, I didn't steal a lot of things. I did steal, but, but I, again, I got blamed for things. If anything got stolen in the neighborhood, I was always the blame. So um, one day, you know, I came home from from high school and uh, a ninth grade, my my older brother is a genius, literally a genius. He's a chemist and a, uh, works in the field of science. And then my younger brother um, uh, uh, had, you know, he he did everything he could to get good grades in school. My older brother, got, of course, he got great grades. And then he got tired. My brother got tired in, in school, and they figured out years later that uh, school was beyond was he was beyond school. He he needed to be in a higher level, and they now take care of that. You know, the gifted kids. So we all came with our report cards. My oldest brother, who should have got straight A's, got just a really poor report card, and my younger brother got a really poor report card, and I got. A really good report card. <laughs> so, cause I wanted, I wanted to, to prove something to my dad. I think that I wanted to hear him say, you know, I'm proud of you, you know, way to go. But he took the report card and, uh, threw it on the dinner table and he turned to my brothers and said, if that dummy could get those grades, you guys could do better. Oh, you know, and that's probably ninth grade is probably when I quit school. You know, I said, well, I've done all I could, you know. I was told that uh, I was going to be like my Uncle Gene, you know, all my life uh, because of the, my behavior. And my Uncle Gene, of course, was an alcoholic and and uh, had uh, gone through a couple marriages. Uh, so uh, without knowing it, I became like my Uncle Gene, you know, so. So it sounds like, you know, throughout your early years, you just had a lot of words of discouragement i would even call like kind of like words of death you know spoken over you but by your parents what did you do to that you know i feel like people have two choices in in that situation they can either try to like rise above that and prove those people wrong or sometimes people get so deflated that they just take on those words as their identity and they start believing those things are true about themselves what did you do well you know for parents you never say anything derogatory or um, bad against your kids, especially in front of other people, you know? So I, that's what I did in ninth grade. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to prove them wrong. And uh, we were at Hill high school at that time was one of the, one of the elite schools in the state, if not the Midwest or the country. Uh, and I'm going to really do my best and, and ask the teacher for help and just spent two to three hours every day and, and uh, studying my, my work and then, and then got it, got a really good report card. Uh, so I did everything I could to prove my dad wrong. But then when I, when he just said, you know, that if that dummy could do that, you know, you guys can get better grades. Then I gave up and I said, I, you know, I can't do it. I, I'm not, I've tried to prove myself. I've tried to add up to their expectations, which was get a good education. Why? So that you can get a good job. Why? So that you can be successful. Why? So that you can buy lots of things, you know, so, um, and I just I just gave up, and that's when I switched. You know, the crowd I hung started hanging around with was uh, you know not 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 the crowd you want your kids to hang around with. And then we just started doing things that that uh, was pretty common to our culture, which were what drugs, uh, alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, back then it was kind of experimental. Uh, you know, we were looking for <clears throat> uh, we rose tried to try to rose up against any authority, and we saw a lot of that take place then and it is as it is as as it is today so uh didn't lack a lot of lack of respect for authority and uh and uh 
get into drugs, alcohol, and probably an immoral life, a party life, you know. So uh, that's what they expected me. That's what Uncle Gene did. That's what I was going to do. So and I, and I see it now, and that's what helps in my preaching, that whatever you expect of your kid, that's what you're, what you're going to get. So expect the best, get the best. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good word. That's a good <laughs> word. So it sounds like that was a really pivotal moment, though, your dad – you know, saying if that dummy can get these grades, you can. You mentioned that you really always wanted your dad to just tell you, I'm proud of you. Did that ever happen in your life? Uh, no, it didn't, I don't think. No, not that I can recall, because I think if it did, it would have been a big deal. And I, and I didn't realize how important that was and until um, now, you know, when I see people raising their kids and say, oh, my goodness, that's what my dad did. You know, you, you, we, we've got to help these people out. And that's why we d- d- developed a church. We developed a church here that was uh, skilled at reaching young families so that we can help them just figure it out. What, what's it like to be a, a young married mother or woman or man? And what's it like to be a, a parent? What should I do? How should I raise this child? Just try to figure out things that are common to their to their uh, uh, experiences as a newly married or a new parent uh, so that's that's kind of been on my heart. Is this? Hey, let's let's help these people out. Make sure that they don't do the things that I've seen other parents do, and and see their kids go the wrong direction. Yeah, no, that's awesome. How you you took what you went through in those really formative years of your life, and now as part of your ministry, really making that a focus to help others prevent going down that road. What um, when it comes to your substance use, you know, drugs, alcohol, did you feel? I don't know, looking back at it, do you feel like that was like a really big problem for you that you struggled with, like that you were addicted? Was it more of just a leisure thing that you did? With uh, it was, it was, well, my parents thought I was an alcoholic, you know, I, I say it wasn't, but every alcoholic does that, you know. Um, uh, so I, I, I said I could deal with it. I could handle it. I, I was getting into it and I think the Lord got me at the right time. He just, he just saved me before I went over the top. Uh, so um, I would tell people and my friends that I can, I could, you know, I can handle it. I can quit when I want, but I never did until I got saved. So it was, uh, it was probably experimental, and um, and then became a weekend thing, and then it became uh, something more than weekends, and then I got saved. So I think I think God saved me at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's get into that. You mentioned that you grew up Catholic and, you know, currently in the story here, your ninth grade dropout, really going down the path of substances. What happens next? Uh, well, I didn't I didn't quit school at ninth grade. I just I kept going to school, but I quit trying. Oh, that's what you meant. Yeah, I didn't drop out in ninth grade. I, I went I graduated from high school, but uh I didn't put the effort into it like I did prior to ninth grade, and especially in ninth grade, you know. So, uh, uh, and, and it was it was uh, just after high school, you know. I had that that uh, um, I had decisions I had to make. My dad wanted me to get into the the armed forces because he felt I needed to be disciplined, and he was right. You know, my life was really totally undisciplined. I did what I wanted when I wanted. Uh, how I wanted, and um, so it was tough to uh, work for somebody that didn't know when I was going to show up to work or when I was. So, um, so that was kind of a, a time of I began to really look within. I was getting sick and tired of 
everything I was doing and, and was trying to do what I could to stop. I said I could stop, but every time I tried, I'd stop for a little bit and then I'd go right back into it. Um, so, um, met a girl that in high school that, uh, really liked and, um, she said to me, she was 10th grade. I was a senior. Um, and so we started dating. The first thing she said to me when, when we were dating is, Hey, I'd like you to go to church with me. Uh, she was what I called a goody two shoes, very religious. Um, um, and I uh, was always asking me to go to a youth event that was spiritual or to their church. And I, I said, no, and I, but I had other plans for her. You know, I thought, you know, here's what I really want to do. And, uh, so it was during that time that I thought, you know, I really need to straighten my life out because I've really got something that, uh, that is, that's good, you know, that, that, that I, I liked and, and, um, uh, and that it, that didn't end well, you know. So she was going into her senior year, and I was going into uh, college, probably my second year of college, and we broke up. And uh, and I think I, I've never talked to her about why, but I, I I have suspicions, you know, that was the way I was living just wasn't attractive to her. Um, and I think her parents were looking for her to to get somebody that. Would, would maybe take her to where she dreamed to go. And I wasn't that person. So that kind of broke my heart. And I had people that I worked with. Um, and they, they were always telling me that I was going to go to hell because I was a Catholic, you know, and, and that didn't help. I mean, don't ever do that. <laughs> so yeah, not I, a good idea. Yeah. So I wasn't going to hell. I found out now I'm not going to hell because I was a Catholic. I'm going to hell because I didn't know Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. so. So uh, that made me mad, and uh, it was counterproductive. But then they would say every now and then, and this went on for like three years, why I was dating this girl and why uh, that was in high school and in college. Um, they were always just uh, trying to to convince me to, to switch to their faith. It was more to their faith than it was to a relationship with Jesus. Uh, so they had really but they still had an impact on my life i'd work with them i'd come to work they'd ask me what i did over the weekend and i'd share with them and one time they gathered there was three of them they gathered around me and we we're going to try, start casting demons out you're, you're demon possessed you anyone that does those things is demon possessed and i guess well go go ahead you know but uh so a lot of the lot of things they didn't they did did not work you know it just drove me away from anything that they were involved in yeah but they did say something that that uh I think stuck with me is that, well, if you, if you ever want to come to our church, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Jesus loves you. And, and when they said that, I mean, it just, it was just a simple statement. I thought, really? You, knowing what I do, I always thought Jesus was someone who hated me, waiting to squish me like a mosquito in the palm of his hand. Because of the things my parents said, you know, you're not a good kid. And my neighbors said, you're not a good kid. My friends said, you know, you're crazy. So, so, and God loves me. So that stuck with me. And they said, if you're ever into trouble, you get in too much trouble, turn to God. And uh, we, we know he'll be there. Now, if they would have said that three years earlier, it probably would have saved me a lot of pain. Yeah. Because that stuck with me, and, and they said at the right time, because I was in a lot of trouble. Uh, it was my second year of college. My girlfriend and I just broke up, and uh, 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 I went to my bedroom and knelt down by my bed. I didn't know what to say. 
but I was in so much trouble. I knew nobody could fix it. Uh, my girlfriend had, had, uh, said she was expecting. I'm not sure it was my kid or not. Uh, you know, I was in trouble. Uh, houses were being broke into all throughout the neighborhood. Guns were being stolen and money, jewelry, and I was being blamed for it. And, uh, you know, I, truthfully, I don't even know if I did those things or not. I mean, I, I doubt I did them. But, and the night before, my mom had a call from the St. Paul Police Department and said, hey, was your, where's your kid at right now? And, and, uh, she said, he's in bed. Why? Well, the houses are being broken into and we think it's him, you know, so I, I wasn't in bed. So when I got home, she said, where were you? And I told her I was at a party, you know, so I'm not sure if he believed in me or not, but, uh, I went to bed. So it was that next night. It was a Friday night. Um, I got down on my knees and said, with all these things going on in my life, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I've got to change. There's got to be something. And then that hit me that God loves me. And if I'm ever in a place where I'm desperate, turn to him and, uh, and he'll be there. So I prayed the prayer. You've heard it. People in church have heard it. God, if you're real, prove yourself to me right now and I'll give you my life. And uh, right behind me, my, over my left shoulder, I could sense a presence. It was, my room was completely dark. And yet I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt when I turned around that, that there was something there and something that was not human, something more powerful and more um, uh, supernatural than I've ever experienced. I turned around, just saw maybe just a little bit of a glow, bluish glow light, and it scared me so much. I ran out of my bedroom, which was in the basement, upstairs to the bathroom, locked the door, and just shook. I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, so about 20 minutes later, I opened the door, and I said in my heart, God, if you get out of my bedroom, I'll come and finish my prayer. And I went down. Only this time I left the light on because it was, uh, it was a moment I'll never forget and got down on my knees and said, God, I'll do anywhere. I'll go anywhere and do anything you want me to do to share with whoever you want me to what you just did in my life. Now that wasn't, I don't think that was me. Now, as I grow in my faith, I realized the Holy Spirit was prophesying through me and was just saying, here, this is a kind of a prophetic prayer. You are going to go in places you've never dreamed to people you've never dreamed of going to, to tell them what I did for you in this bedroom. And that's what I've been doing ever since. What an experience. Yeah. What an experience. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to think back to Man, all these accusations being made against you, you're breaking into houses, you're robbing people. Like, that's how widespread your reputation was at that time, it sounds like, you know, and, and in a pretty big area, the Twin Cities. And so I just say that to really highlight that that's where you were. And now here you are in this moment. It sounds really just broken, kind of like your rock bottom, maybe asking God into your heart. You have this amazing experience that forever changes you. What happens after that? Well, um, a lot of things began to happen. <laughs> that night I, I went to bed and slept like I'd ever slept, but my brother totaled our, the car we were using. We shared a car, and he totaled it. So I now couldn't get back to my friends. And uh, it didn't bother me, so now I'm hitchhiking to work and uh, trying to buy a car, you know. So uh, after about, oh, I would say nine months after that prayer, uh, I saved enough money to buy what I call a dream car, which uh, the story behind it's pretty incredible. It was a repossessed car, a car I've always wanted. A guy from Florida 
moved up here and he couldn't make the payments why he was trying to support his family and go to college. And uh, so I got car was worth probably about 2500 I got it for 1600 It was a uh, Plymouth Cuda, and uh, it was something I always wanted, you know, when I first saw the Cudas. And so uh, I now had transportation. Uh, but there were, there were always those times. I've never wanted to go back to uh, that lifestyle. I know some people struggle uh, with it. You know, I, I, when I was at, I went to ended up in a Bible college, uh, Two friends had a similar testimony and I, and we were there at the Twins game, the old Met Stadium, and the guy came by selling beer. It was like 90 degrees and humid, and and they looked at me and said, don't you ever get thirsty for a beer? And I said, you know what? I never have. I never have got thirsty. I've never wanted to go back to that. I knew it was taking me, and I just yelled to the guy, give me a Coke, you know. So uh, so there was, there, was no, there was no draw back to that, but there were times – uh, now that I had a car, I had a friend that was always in the trouble. He got caught stealing, stealing cars. And, and, uh, so he asked if I'd take him to court. And I did. I took him to, took him to court. And, uh, um, then he, he had to make an appeal. And then they set a court date. And I got back in my car and we took off. Went around the corner. I was doing 35 and a 30 looking for a speed, uh, speed limit sign because the police pulled out right behind me. Maybe when police pulled out behind me and I thought, Rob, don't do anything. This guy's right on my tail. And then he turns the lights on and uh, pulls me over. And I know I stopped for the stop sign. And uh, I wasn't speeding, I didn't think. And uh, he said, come back to the car. I went back. He said, you're doing a 35 and a 30. I'm giving you a ticket. Well, he was either trying to get me, because I had a temper. He's trying to be, get me to blow our cork, my cork or my buddy, who was even worse than me. And he got out of the car. He said, Danny, what's he doing? And, and I said, Rob, get back in the car and just stay there. Uh, nothing's wrong. So we got back in the car and the guy gave me a ticket, you know. So, uh, there was always that, I think the devil was always looking for ways to pull me back in my temper. Uh, drugs and alcohol wasn't going to bring me back, but my temper, that was probably something that would get me in trouble. So, uh, um, I was able to control it because I was really upset and was ready to just go over the edge with this policeman. And I, I, I held it together, end up paying the fine. So, uh, after the, after the salvation, things changed like that. You know, that, that was a big change in my life. Uh, uh, I went back to work and I went to work. It was just a week later. Uh, people asked me to come into the break room and said, what happened to you? You've, you've changed. Your language has changed. Your, your face looks different. Uh, you're smiling. What happened? And I said, I don't know. I, I, I had this experience in my bedroom and I didn't, I didn't, didn't know how to explain it. I hadn't read the Bible at that time. And, and, uh, uh, so that changed, you know, I'd, I'd go into a store and a friend I hadn't seen since high school. It's two years out of high school and say, Hey, listen, you're different. Everyone's talking about you're different. You're not at the parties anymore. What's happened to you? And, and I said, well, I, I prayed a prayer in my room and something took place. I can't explain it. So uh, when I went back to work, it was at Red Owl on the east side of St. Paul. Um, we just hired this new guy, Rob Rodriguez, uh, Roger Rodriguez. And he, uh, he, I would, I would, uh, say things to him that I was picking things out of, out of the Bible. Um, and the way I got my first Bible was, uh, at college, I, I thought, well, maybe I should start reading the Bible, but I didn't want to be seen with one. So they had a little Bible about the sack of, uh, size of a pack of cigarettes. There at Luther Hall at the University of Minnesota, so I picked that up and stuck it in my pocket. And then when I was playing softball, I'd roll it up on my sleeve, thinking that 
I didn't, I've never smoked cigarettes, but that, that people wouldn't think it was a Bible, you know, that, hey, he's smoking now. So, but I started reading that, and then at work, Roger Rodriguez would ask, how do you know, as a Catholic, how do you know so much about the Bible? And I told him about the experience. I said, I can't explain what happened. Uh, that's what I'm trying to read the Bible is to figure out what happened to me when I prayed that prayer. He, and he invited me to go to a, with him on weekends to a singing with a singing group. Well, I didn't want to do that. I played softball on the weekends, um, and I uh, would go fishing, and I loved to do that. I didn't want to go traveling with a singing group because I couldn't sing worth a lick. Well, after he he, he uh, probably a number of uh, invitations, I finally accepted the invitation. Okay. I'll come. And now here's one part. Uh, I read the verse that said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And college was about, I've been saved now for probably about uh, just over a year in this experience. And uh, it was September. We're all going back to school. What we did is we went to Withrow, Minnesota, just close to Stillwater. They had a uh, uh, kind of a square dance place there and and we were gonna we were going to to uh have a contest and and there's just mean things we do to girls and it kind of bothered me we were doing this but i set it up i started promoting it we'd all put money on, on a table and uh, the one that was able to come back with a girl and kiss him at the table and get him convince them that they loved him then they won the pot you know so and i always this was starting to eat at me well i promised this roger that I'd go to church with him on Friday night and forgot about it. And that was the night of the dance. And all my buddies, my unsaved buddies were going to be there. You know, so this would probably be my first time back to a place where there was alcohol and, uh, and the lifestyle that I came, was, was trying to come out of. It switched when I was, when I prayed my prayer. And, um, he shows up at six o'clock and says, I'm getting ready to go to this, this dance. And he said, um, you ready to go to church? And I said, oh, yeah, I, I, that's right. Friday night? Yeah, it's a special service. So I said, okay, uh, how long could church service go, right? You know, an hour? We done by 7 to 8. I'll Steve able to get to Withrow by 9, 9 to midnight. That's when the excitement starts. Sure, I'll go to church with you. So we went to this little church in New Hope, Minnesota, and uh, – the song singing was like I'd never heard before, and I was spellbound. I just was something just captured captured me. Just uh, the, the 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 spirit of it, the music, the people, everything was completely just a tiny church with a handful of people. And then the group that was singing was the group that invited me to be part of the group. They sang and and the pastor spoke and it was like he was reading my mail. He was just kind of filleting me out and say. Hey, if you're like this, I want you to come to the altar. So, oh, okay, I'll do that. I had an experience at my bedroom. Maybe something will happen there. And uh, I went to the altar and prayed, but I, I did more crying than praying. I don't know what I was doing, but I sat and cried. And people, I was kind of out of it. But when I came came to, I looked, and there was people all around me with their hands laid on me. It made me a little uncomfortable, but I knew something happened again. And when I looked at my watch, it was 10 o'clock. So the service went three hours. Wow. So I'd never made it out to Withrow. And by the way, the friend I was with uh, that was going to drive me, he had a kudo as well. I went back to my home and was going to bed, and he shows up at 2 in the morning. He's shook up, and he says, Denny, I need to talk to you. 
walks in my bedroom, just kind of walks through my house. I said, what happened? He said, I was in a car accident tonight. And, uh, and you would have been with me. So, uh, yeah, he totaled his car, ran into a hay wagon that somebody deliberately pulled out into the road and smashed into that. And, uh, he said, I want to know what you did. How did you change? So I shared with him what had happened in my life. So that's kind of a, a lot of different things. It's always hard for me to, I'd have to sit down and write about it to figure out. Yeah. The sequence of everything, but those are after I got saved. This things just really start moving fast. Yeah, and at, at the time, did you recognize that you know avoiding, you know, going to the dance and being in the car crash things like that? Did you recognize like that was God's covering, you know, protecting you, or did you just at that time just think of it? Oh, that was just a happy coincidence, or no, I, I didn't recognize any of that until later. Until you know, now I can say, wow, I look back and. And uh, when God saved me in that bedroom, that, that things started moving. My, I think the biggest thing that got me into trouble was my car, you know. So that was before I bought my Cuda. It was a Chevy Impala, and uh, I shared it, so kind of a family car, that my brother totaled that car, which cut me off from my influencers, which were not good, mm-hmm. you know. So, And then I ended up with the singing group, Again, influencers, but really good. Yeah. You know, so I, I look back, so, well, if my brother didn't total that car, where would I be? Yeah. You know, and if I didn't promise this guy to go to church and forgot about it, if he, if he just let it go, he was uh, persistent enough to say, no, I'm going after there, after him. You know, we, we didn't have cell phones. If he would have texted me out and said, no, nah, I've got something else going. So he just showed up at my house, all dressed and ready to go to church. He was, a, he was the main singer in this group. So uh, I promised him I'd go, so I went. And I looked back at that, and I said, if I didn't, the car wasn't totaled, if I didn't go to that church service, I probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. You mentioned that you started going to a Bible college. What were you doing before that, though? You mentioned you were in school. Where did you go to school, and what were you majoring in before you went to Bible college? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so uh, prayer life was something to look forward to. I was majoring in business at that time. Uh, and thought I'd really like to go into business until I got to the accounting class. <laughs> I said, man, I, I'm not sure if I can do this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so it's um, uh, the, the people in this, this song group, this singing group, the leader said, you need to go to Bible college. You need to get grounded in the Word of God. We see too many young people like you come to, come to a faith in Christ and then just go back right into what they came out of. And I thought, well, I couldn't do that because this was just too good. But, you know, I suppose the potential was there. And he just kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me. And I said, no, I'm going to university. And uh, that time I started to change. Uh, I maybe go into real estate or fly airplanes. So those are the two things. I'd make a lot of money in real estate. And uh, I could use the money to fly and maybe use that as a, a career as well. So that's what I wanted to do. So I didn't want to go to <clears throat> this school. And I found out it's a Bible college. And, uh, you know, when you, when you put dough into a cookie factory, it comes out a cookie. And you put a person in a Bible college, they come out a minister. I didn't want to do that. So <clears throat> after he was really persistent, he said, I'll go down there and talk to the administrator, um, college administrator, and I'll, I'll get you into that school. If you just promise me, you'll go down there. I'll say, okay, I'll do that. I'll go down to the school. And I met with William Berry was his name. And uh, I told him that Eric Schoberg, the director of this song group, uh, 
sent me down here. Um, would <clears throat> he, he, uh, told you, he told me, he'd tell me, tell you everything about me. I don't know Eric and I don't know you. I said, he says, what do you want? He says, well, he wants me to come to school. I said, do you have a debt? He said, hey, do you have a debt? He says, yeah, a little bit. Will your parents support you? No, absolutely not. Uh, at that time, they kicked me out of the house because of the change in my life. So, um, so I said, no. So he said, well, why don't you go work for a year, save money, and then come back in a year and uh, we'll talk. I thought, great. Eric didn't fulfill his promise to go down there and tell this guy who I was. And even though I went down there, now I could tell Eric, you want me to go to school? They just denied me. So I said, sure. Shook his hand, walked out of the door and had a, had a vision that, you know, here, here's, uh, here's my life. I walked, was walking through the door and the arch of the door. There was a vision of a sunken living room and all around that living room was a fire. And I saw my friends, some girlfriends and guy friends and, and, in that kind of a living room setting, setting surrounded by fire. And I thought, what is that? And then just said real quiet in my heart. It said, if you walk through these doors, you're going to walk into a hell, hell on earth. And I thought, oh my goodness. I backed up and found myself back up against the wall. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit said, go back and tell that man your testimony. So I went back, told him my testimony, much of what I just shared with you. He slammed his fist or his hand on the table and said, go down and register you. I will get you the money. And so I was in North Central University. Didn't want to be there. Didn't want to become a minister. But because of that experience, trying to walk out of that school, uh, there was just too much fear and respect for what God was trying to say to me that I said, okay, I won't, I won't leave until, until I know it's time. Man, that is just amazing. I, I think about your obedience in that moment, you know, for you to actually just kind of stop and listen to the Holy Spirit, but not just listen to like actually obey the Holy Spirit and look, look what unfolded after that, you know, yeah. how different life would have been if you didn't take exactly. that, exactly. you know, yeah. a couple seconds or a couple minutes to actually listen to the Holy Spirit. I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned that your family kicked you out of the house after your experience. And I was, I was going to ask about that, you know, with you uh, getting saved, you know, going to a Bible college, what was your family's reaction to that? Yeah, that was, uh, <clears throat> that was, that was something they can deal with. Now, when I, when I was, <clears throat> when I was doing the things that, that uh, they weren't proud of, yeah, I was nothing more than the good old American boy. That's just what good old American boys do. Uh, they should have kicked me out of the house then, but it wasn't until I, I gave my heart to the Lord. They saw the change in my life. Start going to the this church service with this Roger Rodriguez and uh, bringing home a Bible, and that's when my dad. I think was like the straw that broke the camel's back. All this other stuff, and then and then being accused of of uh, having a child out of wedlock. My dad just had enough, and he said, "That's it. You're done. Pack up and leave." Well, at that time, I had my own car now. I had the Micuda. He says, take what belongs to you, what belongs to us, leave here. You're done. And I left. And that's when I went to the – that's probably one of the motivating forces to go, at least to the college. And uh, I didn't want – even though I didn't want to go there, it might be place, someplace I could find a bed, you know. So, so uh, yeah, that's – that's uh, that was experiences I'll never forget. Yeah. And I know just listening to some of your sermons, you mentioned that your parents wanted you to get into business and, and into, you know, a money-making position. And so here you are 
obeying the Holy Spirit, going to be a minister, even though you didn't really feel like it at the time. Did your family, did your parents ever come around to, you know, just the decisions you were making in your life? And and did they ever accept, you know, the, the fact that you got saved? Or was that something that was just always kind of uh, a sour point for them? Well, it's always been a sour point, but it was about six months uh, after I'd uh, started going to Bible college. Uh, I started in February, so it was probably about June, somewhere in there, uh, June or July, that they called me home because they hadn't seen me. My mom called me, uh, somehow got a hold of me and said, hey, would you come home? Dad and I want to talk to you. So I went back home, and they put their blessing. My dad said, you know what? You just were like an 18-wheeler shifting gears all the time. You just had absolutely no discipline. You had Your, your life had never had, had a course set for you. And this just bothered us. Uh, but we see the change in you. The change is so drastic, we can't deny it. And it was so, 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 so strong that that's, that they said that they, they wanted me to see a psychologist to make sure that there was something that I hadn't flipped out or taken a drug that caused me to do this or something. Wow. But yeah. So that was probably about in July and they, they accepted me and, and, uh, um, and did pretty much all the way up until they passed away here just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So I, I, I want to talk about the psychologist experience. What was that like for you? You go in, talk to a psychologist. What did the psychologist say? <clears throat> or I, I imagine he didn't really find anything. Well, no, they, they set me up with a Jesuit priest. They wanted to, because they, they said nobody walks away from alcohol that quick. And, uh, and you've got this spiritual, you know, this, these spiritual moments in your life, you're on a spiritual journey, you should probably talk to a Jesuit priest. He knows what they're talking about. And, uh, and, and for those listening, can you describe what a Jesuit priest is? Well, it's, it's a priest. What's a little, it's, it's, a, it's a bump up from a regular priest. I mean, these guys are the, they're, I, I always looked at them as the, as the priests that were really smart. They knew what they were talking about. They understood the Bible. They had, uh, maybe a higher education than maybe a regular priest, but I may be wrong, but that, that's how I looked at them. They were, they were just, uh, uh, I highly respected them because of, of, of who they were. Well, I turned that down. They said, well, would you, would you, if you don't see the psychiatrist or, uh, the priest, would you see a psychiatrist or a psychologist? And I said, no. Because I knew there was nothing wrong. I mean, I was so happy, I was so free. Um, I told him, Mom, Dad, I, I, I don't, I don't want to do it. And they said, Well, we'll set you up an appointment. If you change your mind, let us know. And I never changed my mind, so I never did see a psychologist or a okay. priest. Yeah, I saw one priest, and, and he's a priest, a prophet, and a king is Jesus Christ. That's and that's where I, Amen. I, uh, I've got my therapy. Yeah, yeah. Getting that blessing from your parents, specifically from your dad, you, you talked about throughout your life, you just really wanted acceptance fr from your dad and just affirmation that, hey, I'm proud of you. He didn't specifically say those words, I'm proud of you, but he gave you his blessing for you to continue on in, in you know, the, the, the decisions you were making in life. What was that like for you? Well, yeah, I don't know if that was, uh, it was, we're, we're, we're Irish we're Catholics, and uh, we're proud of that. You know, my whole family—we we come from a large family. My dad and mom both had large families, and they were all Catholic, Irish, Gallagher's, and Currens, and and uh, that was a part of their heritage. And to see well, someone walk away from that was really tough. And that's what they explained. This is why we got so upset because you're walking away from the very thing that uh, we birthed you in, and you brought you in, and now you're telling us it's not good enough. You know, but you know the change. 
is so drastic. I mean, the conversation was probably an hour, an hour and a half. So, um, uh, but that's that's what I got out of it. You know, I'm Irish, I'm Catholic, and this is what Irish Catholics we we drink, we we uh, we're proud of our faith, our heritage, and you don't walk away from that. So that's what bothered them, and that's why they said this is why we we went off on you. Yeah. So it sounds like along with getting that blessing, that conversation really just kind of helped you guys understand each other a little bit more of where each of you guys were coming from. Right. Right. Yeah. So you're in Bible college, you go to North Central. What do you end up graduating with? A degree in pastoral studies, you know. So um, it was my junior year. I didn't, the whole time I was there, um, I had, uh, I was probably there two years in my junior year because a year carried over from, from uh, University of Minnesota. I was able to transfer some credit. So my sophomore year, I, I didn't like it there. Uh, I didn't. Uh, it was strange. It was all new. Uh, people were different than who I grew up with. Uh, I, I developed, dealt, developed some close friends, and uh, they came from pretty much the same background, out of a Catholic uh, faith, and it was all new for them. So those are the ones we connected with. So my junior year, I was just kind of tired of, of school wasn't doing well and a friend called and said hey would you come back and play softball with us uh, and uh, we need a second basement and we're gonna be traveling to omaha to winnipeg to bismarck to sault ste marie and we've got these tournaments planned so we've been gone every weekend so we, if you play for us you can't work during the weekend so you have to be on friday saturday sunday and that worked out for me i kind of like to do that but it was my old drinking buddy. It was a, it was a, it was a bad influencers. They were the energy takers, not the energy givers. So, uh, but I wanted to do it. I want to play softball. I didn't want to come back to school. So my car was packed. It was May 19th. My CUDA was packed with every possession I had. I was cleaning out my dorm. Junior year had come to an end and I had a decision to make. So I knelt down by my bed and said, all right, God, I don't know what you want me to do, but for this moment, I'll surrender to anything. Anywhere you want me to go, anywhere you want me to go, anything you want me to do, I'll do it. Now, show me today. And I got up for my prayer, and I realized, oh, I've got a, a, a bill in, my, in the bookstore. I better go pay that before I leave because I won't be coming back. So I went out of the dorm room into the main uh, buildings, and the president of the college came out of his office, grabbed me by the arm, and said, what are you doing this summer? I said, I don't know. I didn't want to tell him I'm playing for a softball team. By the way, the name of the softball team was Maplewood Liquors. So I didn't want to tell that to a college Bible professor. Yeah, probably not a good look. No. So it took me down to college ministries, and they said, hey, we've got a church up in central Minnesota that's uh, – we forgot to get them an intern. We have a, a singing group that's supposed to be there, and we forgot about it. He's got them booked all over town, and now he's really upset. And then he told us when he hung up the phone, I bet you forgot an intern as well. And I told him, no, I haven't forgot the intern. I'll get you an intern. And he said, Denny, will you be the intern? And I said, I'll pray about it. And the college president said, good, picked up the phone, called the guy in Painesville, Minnesota, and said, Pastor, I've got you an intern. And I thought, I looked at him, it would happen so quick, I I thought to myself, I, I, I thought I said I, I would pray about it. And the Holy Spirit very quietly said, you just did. <laughs> and I realized that prayer in my bedroom, again, in my dorm room, that I said, show me today. Yeah. So this was a half hour after that prayer. Wow. 
Yeah. So, and that rest is history. I ended up in Painesville as a intern, and and then uh, leaving there and going back to college and finishing up my senior year. Finished my junior senior year, and uh, they called me back, said we'd like you to come back. So I ended up in Painesville for eighteen years. Have you ever heard of Painesville before you went there? I thought they meant Janesville, Wisconsin. I didn't know there was a Painesville, Minnesota. <laughs> I'd been all over Minnesota, never heard Painesville. So I, I I had to make sure it wasn't Janesville, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So they gave me directions, and up the road I went. What was it like getting out of you know the Twin Cities area and getting back into a, a rural area? Uh, well, I didn't go. It wasn't coming back. I was I was big city boy all my life. So coming out here, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, so um, I thought, wow, this is crazy. I there was no place to go. There there was nothing to do. Um, so I had to pick up things, um, that I never really done in, in excess before, like fishing. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go fishing. Uh, so I did a little bit of fishing while I was there, but work with the kids, but that, that, uh, between my junior and senior year, those summer months, uh, in, in Painesville, got to like the kids and kind of snuck them away to the twins game. You know, I, I like to go to the twins game when I lived in the Swiss cities, but way out here, it was so much more difficult to get there. So. So we'd stick out and go to the Twins game and uh, and then do a little fishing with them and and kind of developed a, a heart for the rural setting. Yeah. That was the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask where your love of the outdoors came from. Anyone that's heard you preach knows that you love the outdoors. Uh, and I was always curious, like, did that did that start in Washington? You know, were you able to go explore? kind of the, you know, the outdoors there, or did that start in Painesville? Yeah, no, I think it, it was a little kid I loved to be outside, you know, and, and we would walk on the foothills of the Rockies, you know, Spokane's on the east or west side of the Rockies. <clears throat> so, yeah, we'd always uh, head up under the hills, the mountains, my brothers and I, and, and uh, just loved the wildlife and seeing that. Moving to the cities then, you know, that was Spokane, and moving to the to the cities, we are now uh, foothills, of the Rockies, and, and the far edge of Spokane, big city, Washington. So then coming to big city, St. Paul, and then going to college in big city, Minneapolis, uh, kind of didn't realize how much I missed the wildlife and being out in the open, you know, until I got back to Painesville and then started falling in love with it again. Yeah. 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 So you serve in Painesville for 18 years. At what point does God put it on your heart to start, you know, your own church in, in Cold Spring. Well, that's interesting. We, we, um, we loved Painesville. You know, we, we thought we'd be there for the rest of our life. I was children, youth pastor for nine years and then, and then senior pastor for nine years. And, uh, the church was full, but it was difficult. It was a third, fourth generation church. So I, I'm always looking for creative things to do things that would, create interest or draw attention so that I could share the gospel. They liked the good old-fashioned style of service. You know, I wanted to bring the drums and the keyboards and and uh, and the tambourines in. You know, of course, the tambourines might have been a mistake, but anyhow, <laughs> the drums and the and the keyboards and the guitars, they didn't like that. So it was always pushing up resistance. And I told my wife for probably three years – the last three years there, I wish I could just start something on my own foundation. And I just kept saying it. And she says, well, why don't you? Well, then I'd have to spend faith. You know, I'd have to leave here and they're, you know, they're taking care of me. You know, so, uh, the, the assemblies of God 
uh, the last 10 years, 1990 to 2000, they want to call that the decade of harvest. They wanted to plant churches all across America. And they, they made this big effort, this big campaign to do that. And uh, I was in a meeting with other ministers who were very critical. They were three years into that decade of harvest and we hadn't planted a church. And they were critical of the whole thing. And I said, why be critical? Let's do something about it. And they said, well, why don't you then? We'll just nominate you as the head of our section, as our decade of harvest rep. I said, now, where do you want to plant a church? And I said, well, I'll plant a church. I want to go to Glenwood or Annandale, uh, Melrose, Albany, one of those towns. And they said, how about Cold Spring? And I said, no, that's, I don't want to go Cold Spring because it was, it was just to me, it just seemed like a really hard city. And to make a long story short, I, I, uh, turned out that I got outvoted that our section said, you're the head of decade of harvest. For our section, you, we want you to go to Cold Spring. Now, good luck. You know? So, okay, I didn't know what to do. Took an ad out in the newspaper, and six people showed up to a Bible study at the American Inn, which is now the Riverside Inn. And uh, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Six people showed up. And I just started bragging about it to my home church in Painesville. They, I didn't realize. They didn't like the idea. Uh, so I... I uh, this was the beginning of November, and, and as the year went on, or the weeks went on, um, first week, six people showed up, and then for the next six weeks, nobody showed up, up until Christmas. And then I took out an ad in the paper and said, we're closed for the holidays. We'll resume our Bible study at American January 12th. So we did, and I went back January 12th, 12 people showed up. So I doubled in size. I didn't quit when no one showed up. I had six people, and for six weeks, no one showed up. My daughter was with me, and I, I kept telling her something big's going to happen in Cold Spring. God's going to do something here. He's going to use us. And it just encouraged her as a ninth grader at that time to come with me. She played the keyboard to lead worship, but nobody showed up to worship. You know? So so then when we had 12 people, then, then things start cooking. And it went from 12 to 44 to 88. And What did you do during those few weeks where no one showed up? Like, did you and, and your daughter just kind of have your own Bible study? Yeah, or? we did. Yeah, we, it, was, it, was, it was daddy-daughter time, and we, we talked about the Lord. Now she's in ministry, and she's doing a, a tremendous job. And, yeah, so it, was, it, it, it became attractive to her that, uh, that I would, you know, she watched, and she's, I'm, I don't know what she was thinking when I say something big is going to happen here. I say, right, nobody showed up for your Bible study again, you know. Yeah. I don't know what she was thinking, but she stuck with, with me the whole time, and— uh, and now she's doing incredible things for God. So, yeah, it was, and when I said to her, I believe God's going to do something in Cold Spring, something big's going to happen to her. I said that, but I'm not sure I believed it. Mm-hmm. I, but I just kept saying it, you know, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And pretty soon it began to happen. Yeah. And so you started River of Life in 1990? No, no, 1993 was uh, November of 94. Uh, those were the two years. Uh, our, I think our first official service was uh, January 11th, 1993. Okay, yeah. so 1993, fast forward to you know where we are now, September 2021, you go from six people to zero people to 12 people. Where is River of Life now in 2021? Well, we, we know that we have, in a given week, we have over 900 people that show up you know, from Wednesday to, the, to all of our life groups and Sunday morning, uh, we have 
probably about 1,400 people who say they call this their church home, you know, so. What's that like for you to, you know, as you say that, to kind of reflect back on those early days, no one's showing up to now, there's there's a lot of people showing up. Yeah, I don't really look at the numbers side of it. You know, I, I don't count the people. There are people that come in. My administrator comes in and says, you realize this is what we had for, for the last week? And, well, that's nice. I'm always looking for that one more. Who I don't care about 14. I, I care about the 14. It's that one sheep that's out there yet. I and mean, we still have empty chairs. So there's still chairs that are, are need to be filled. And I know that there's families out there that are struggling to, to find Christ. There are kids out there who are struggling with their identity. They've got emotional, psychological issues. They're copping out in life and on themselves. And, and those are the people that excite me. Those are the ones that God's called me to. He transformed my life, and I really think God's made me a transformational agent. And there are people out there that need to be changed. They come, all right, I've got someone who counts. They add to the number. But I don't know. You know, I, I give you numbers that were given to me. I don't know how many are given any, yeah. here. I just know there's empty seats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the parable where, you know, leave the 99 for one. Right, and exactly. That seems like the attitude yeah. that you have. And I, I love that. I love that about you as a pastor is that, yeah, numbers really aren't important. You're always looking to to just, you know, for more. Let, let's continue to grow the kingdom, expand the kingdom. Over the, you know, 20 plus years of River of Life, what have been maybe some of the hardest challenges and hurdles that you've faced as as a pastor? Well, building projects are always hard. Planning churches. We planted seven churches out of here, and uh, every one of those churches were a challenge. Um, they're really, uh, the Assemblies of God and other church movements have really become good at planning churches. When we planted the churches out of River of Life, we planted our first church in 19, I'm going to say 1993 of December. So we were only six months old, and we planted Glenwood because people came and said, hey, would you? Do for us what you do or you're doing in Cold Spring. And we did. But there were a lot of challenges to that, financial challenges. Uh, challenges with our own movement that, that, uh, you know, because we weren't planning churches like we should have been, it became a threat to people in that area. You know, they're afraid they're going to lose their people. And I try to convince them they're not your people. These are God's people. What God takes, he gives back. Don't worry about it. And, and they, they, uh, like Glenwood, one was tough, you know, and I went there. I had $6,000 that my little church had given to help this go. They, they bought into the vision of winning people to Christ and planting churches. And, and I was in that meeting in Glenwood, uh, and, uh, and they yelled at me. There was about, about, I'd say about eight people, four people from my section, four people from their section. And their superintendent, their, uh, uh, presbyter said, what gives you the right to come to Glenwood? And plant a church. And I said, I, I, I didn't say anything. I was shocked that any minister would ask that. The answer was obvious to me. There's lost people here. <laughs> you know, you, there's people here that, that don't have a full gospel message. I, I just think we, we owe it to them. That was my insight thought. But because he couldn't see that, I thought this guy's just too dumb to understand. I had that $6,000 check in my briefcase. My briefcase was, was open. I was ready to hand it to him to say, I'm buying into this. Here's what I'll give. But I shut my briefcase and said, that's it. And then one of the guys from my section was with me and said, wait a minute. Let's just ask the question. Give me one good reason why we should not plant a church in Glenwood. And make a long story short, nobody argued against it. And they said, okay, Danny, you do it. And, uh, but we're not helping. 
and now we've got a thriving church in Glenwood, you know. So every, and, and every, every church plant, I know we don't have time to go each one. Each one had its challenges. The waters was another big challenge. Was probably as big as the Glenwood. That was, that was a tough church, but you know what? We stuck with it like we stuck with the cold spring when we had six people, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, 12 people. Sartail had a lot of resistance. Um, spiritual resistance mostly. And, and to look where they're at today is exciting. But, um, the numbers don't, don't excite me as much as, as maybe I, I think they should. But, but the idea that they're winning people and now Sartell's planting churches and our church in Glenwood's planted a church. So I, I've got not just daughter churches, I got granddaughter churches and my granddaughter churches have planted other churches. So I got great granddaughter churches. And again, the district, came to me and said, you know, years ago, I don't count the numbers, but they said probably about eight years ago, do you realize out of your church and the churches in rural Minnesota that you planted, there's nearly 6,000 people in church on Easter Sunday? I said, no, I, I didn't count those. But you know what? There's 6,000 more that need to know Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Amen. What's it been like leading this church through unprecedented times with a global pandemic. You know, I, I kind of, I, I kind of thrive in that. I kind of like that because I know God's up to something. I know a lot of people panic. You know, I was, uh, it was nine eleven uh, that I was at a prayer and fasting retreat on a Monday, and I just there was just something eating inside of me. Something was about to happen and at the prayer and fasting retreat. There was, there was more, there was more talking than than praying. So I thought I'm going home. So I left Alexandria and came to my office here in in, uh, in Cold Spring. It was our new church. We just built the church. I was laying on the ground just praying, and my wife calls me and said, if you're watching the TV, I said, no, it, someone just ran a plane into the Twin Towers. And I, so I ran home and got there just in time to see the second plane run in. And I knew, you know, uh, the every politician says, never it, let a crisis go to waste. You know, that's politics. They try to use it to, to promote their party. But I sense God saying, you know, this is, this is evil. Don't, don't let evil begin your, become your motivating force. What I have seen for evil, I'm going to create some good. And I just sense God was going to do some good things and got excited about, I'm going to make something good out of this and came to church. God gave me a message about terrorism and came to church and the church was full. I mean, it was packed out. People were coming to hear, and, and I think God gave me a word. Uh, and then we prayed, and people were crying because all of America was scared. And I realized, you know, God, you've got their attention. Now let's, 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 let's see what you can do. Let's make a harvest of this. And went to the back of the sanctuary and met with people I'd never seen before in the church for the first time. They said, we really liked what you said. He said, we went to our own church this morning. The pastor got up and said, I don't know what we're going to do now, and started crying, and that was his message. And, uh, and he said, so that's why we came here. So we had an answer. God has, God's going to use the church in times like that. And then when the pandemic hit, we felt the same way. So we met in this room with the staff. And we said, let's just find some ways that we can, we can get people's attention. So we called it church on the move. And we went uh, and had church service on the lake because we couldn't come. They couldn't come to us. We said, we'll come to you. And uh, so we went, we went on the lake, we went on the deck, we went into boats, we went into parks and just started sharing the gospel in creative ways and creative areas. And uh, uh, because we stayed engaged with our church, and then we'd offer them, of course, if you can answer a question at the end of the message, we'll bring you 
a coffee or you bring your lunch or something, you know. So we'd bring five or six or eight people lunch. They'd answer the question. So we kept them engaged and we kept them uh, in life groups that we did them online. We, we were all set for that before the pandemic. We had a good online presence. Uh, we did online giving. And uh, so we didn't, it wasn't something we had to create. We were ready to go with it. And because of that, uh, we came through the pandemic pretty good financially. And our people have mostly come back, you know, they're, they're here. So, Praise God. so I, I kind of like those times. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Denny, you've been super uh, generous with your time. Uh, I know you got other things you got to get to. I do want to uh, end, though, as a marriage and family therapist, I'm always interested in, you know, people's love stories. So you you always talk so glowingly and uh, jokingly uh, about your wife, Cheryl. How did you guys meet? Did, did you meet like pre-Jesus and salvation? Did you meet after you were saved? No, after I saved. Uh, she came to school. Uh, um, the end of my sophomore year and the beginning of that junior year. And uh, I saw her in the hall. She was just there in college days. Her sister was already at school. And I saw her walking down the hall, and I said to somebody, who's that? And they said, well, that's Cheryl, Nadine's sister. She's here to check out the college. She may be coming next year. So I said, wow, I'd like to get to know her. You know, So I started to get to know her before school ended that summer, and we kind of kept a light relationship. And then my junior year started. We started to, to date, and then she broke up with me, and then we got back together, and she broke up. And I went on like four times, and uh, I, I thought, what, what's wrong with this, with this girl? You know? So then I went to my internship. Uh, at the end of my junior year and she, we broke up and so it was always a heartbreak for me that, so why couldn't she see this is, this is what she wants, you know? So, so, uh, and then, and then coming back that junior year after, after a tough time interning in Painesville or my senior coming back that senior year, uh, we, uh, we started getting more serious, you know, I think our times together were longer and we weren't breaking up as much. And then on Thanksgiving before uh, we were going to go to her folks' house, um, we had broke up, I think, the beginning of November. She wanted to date somebody else. And she called and said, I want to talk to you. And I said, no, I've been beat up enough. And I talked to a friend. I said, okay, I'll, I'll tell I'm going to meet her in front of the dorm. And I'm not going to play any more games. I know that's who I want to marry. So, um, I'm going to ask her to marry, marry me. And she, he said, you're crazy. You know, she'll never do it. So uh, it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And we met in front of the dorm. It's cold, leaned up against my car. And she said, I want to get back together. I said, I'm not getting back together with you unless you marry me. And she said, yes. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Still brings tears. She caught me off guard. I thought this is the end, you know. So picked her up the next day and we went out, met with her folks and uh, told them we were getting married, you know. I didn't ask for her hand. I didn't know how to do that. But <laughs> but uh, they approved of it, you know. A little. I think they were a little nervous of my background. And uh, she would say things, I don't care what you did in the past, just make sure you don't repeat them in the future, which I liked, you know. That was one thing that... Uh, I realized I picked the right one. And the other thing is that she don't. She said, I don't care where you go. 
as long as you know God's taking you there. I'll follow you. And that's what I wanted. So those two statements said, you know what? She's the right one. And we got married in, in uh, August 14th of the following year. Yeah. So how long have you guys been married now? Don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married 46 years, probably. Wow. 47 years. 46, 47 years yeah. and four kids together. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Amazing. Right. So cool. All doing good. All the grandkids are good. Yeah. 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 I'll serve the Lord. Yeah. What a legacy. I, I, you know, I, th I just think about hearing your story, Denny, and what a legacy you've left for your family, considering where you came from and where you're at now. And I love it because you can't take any credit for it. It's all That's God, right? right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's God that did everything in you. And I just, I, I, I just look up to you so much, Denny, just your, your vulnerability, your honesty, obviously your sense of humor, like, um, it, it's just an, an honor to be a part of this church and this community that, that you've forged in, in cold spring here. And again, it, I'm, there's a lot more I'd like to talk to you about, but I want to be generous of your time. So we'll have to plan a part two at some point. Um, but thank you so much, Denny, for, for coming on and, and sharing your testimony. What a, uh, just amazing story of God showing up exactly when you needed him to throughout your life. Yeah. Well, Terry, we got a great church, but it's not, it's not me. It's guys and families like Terry and Abby. You know, you make the place a great church. And we've got just a lot of good people. And, and the whole idea of the legacy, I don't, a legacy really to me isn't, uh, isn't something I've done. It's when I leave. Mm. And what do the people I've influenced do? That's the legacy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. That's a good word. Well, thanks, Denny, so much. Thanks, Terry. Yep. Well, like I said, guys, I could have easily talked with Denny for a lot longer, and we'll definitely plan to do a part two to dig into even more of his story. But how awesome is it to hear how Denny went from being the neglected troublemaker to now being a pastor of a healthy and thriving church? To me, Denny's testimony goes to serve as a reminder that no matter who you were or what you did in your past, you can always turn your life around. And it starts with simply saying yes to Jesus. You heard Denny do that, and how his obedience in letting the Holy Spirit guide him really saved him from destruction at various points of his life and brought him to where he's at today. So if you guys have any questions for Denny that you'd want to hear him answer in part two, Use the hashtag AskTWT across all the Testimonies with Terry social media platforms, and we'll get Denny to answer some. Thanks again for listening to the show. I'll be back next week with another great testimony, and remember to share the show to get the word out. And as always, live your life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt.